And I still remember that were people having an opinion about us selling out or yet another Dutch startup selling out. But if you make a statement like that, sort of it just shows how little you understand what went into it to actually get to that point. Starting a company is easy. Selling your company, well, that's a whole different story. In the big exit show by Peak, we lift the curtain of secrecy of selling ambitious scale-ups by talking to successful founders who have been in this roller coaster. My name is Remy Gieling. And I'm Johan van Mil. And in this episode, we have the honor to talk to a true serial entrepreneur. And despite his young looks, he founded and exited multiple technology companies. He lived in Silicon Valley for many years, but now he's back in Amsterdam to work on his latest venture, Detail.co, which raised over $7 million to relieve the world of poor quality in streaming video. We will talk about this, but even more about his exit to SurveyMonkey and Mapbox, as he is the co-founder of Usabilla and Human, the leading tool for customer feedback. And, well, how can I introduce Human? Because... Most people uh, know Usabella, of course, but it's what's so, human? It's slowly losing the tracks, as in typically I could refer them still to the homepage of human.co, um, but that must, that must, that's no longer existing. And we built one of the first fitness trackers on the App Store. So it was all-day activity tracking before that was a feature on your iPhone and uh, Apple Watch. And it's it, it was in, even app of the year at some point, right? Uh, that's the highlight of my career, was the <laughs> being best of App Store in 2014. <laughs> I still remember waking up to that. Um, according to yourself, you are a bad designer and a bad coder. So what's your founder superpower? <laughs> oh, shit. Where did you read that? <laughs> um, no, I typically sort of, I look at myself as sort of a little bit like a Swiss army knife. Um, as in there's like a saw and a good knife on, on, on like the collection of little tools on that thing. Typically not the best knife and definitely not the best saw that you can use to cut a tree. Uh, but if you have to, it works. And that's a little bit sort of how I look at my own skill set as well. So I think my superpower is that I don't really have like a specialty, but it's more like a, a diverse skill set that actually helps me to solve problems. Hey, Paul, what's the heroic story behind human? Oof, uh, the heroic story. Um, I think we sort of, as, as a company, we started with very bold plans and ideas and sort of the idea of doing all-day activity tracker in, in that year, so it was like 2012 or 2013, we started building one of the first fitness trackers and doing that with GPS only. It was the iPhone 4, like sort of a very different device than we have in, in your pocket today. Uh, building that was technically super hard, but we managed to sort of get that going. In the end, sort of, we were riding this roller coaster of App Store hype around health and fitness and such. Uh, so, indeed, sort of getting selected as best of App Store in 2014, and sort of getting featured everywhere, and sort of Apple was really sort of selecting us as sort of really booster child for a generation of apps, um, which was super exciting, and that sort of brought us a lot of excitement in the in the ecosystem. A lot of people that used the app, and a lot of people that hate the app, hated the app, but also a lot of people that enjoyed using it every day. So that to me was sort of like definitely a highlight of what I've built so far. Everybody those days was using human, I recall. Everybody. Yeah, and typically it would also uninstall it after a while <laughs> when, the, when, when their battery would get drained. Especially the first versions, of course. We were super early building what we were building and sort of doing all the activity checker back then. We always, we always joked that the first group of people that were using the app um, actually used it and were donating battery life for a good cost so yeah, that yeah. we could actually improve our product bit by bit. <laughs> Uh, but like two or three years into that adventure, uh, it became easier and easier to do that because we always said that tracking would become a commodity and that Apple and Google would be taking care of all the activity tracking and that we could build a gameplay on top of that. 
and sort of took took a while, but we got there. Yeah. yeah. Hey, and what is the real story of human? Uh, yeah, this is where we go deep, right? Um, the real story was sort of it was super rough, right? And sort of starting with a crazy idea, getting it right. I remember sort of shipping the first version on the App Store and getting hit by a 1.5 star rating. Uh, it's really hard to recover from that after a year of development. Because of battery life, I think. Battery life and sort of tracking accuracy and the, the challenge that we sort of, the thing that we tried to build was just really hard and complicated. Um, and at the same time, sort of while we were so focused on building like a great product experience, it was challenging to actually build like our own uh, growth mechanisms. And because Apple featured us everywhere, it's sort of we would wake up to 100,000 downloads on a given morning, and it's really hard to compete with that with your own channels and sort of building like a sustainable business around it. So as a being very product for sort of we we tried to raise capital, but we failed miserably at it. Sort of it took us, I think we raised a total of about a million dollars over the course of four years with a team of five. Um, I think most of those four years we were running on fumes. Uh, at some points we were like at one and a half, minus one and a half years of runway, and just trying to keep the company afloat. And pushing through that was really challenging. And so at the same time, we also had like a founder switch. So one of my co-founders left the company, and so which gave me the opportunity to give it at least one more try. And that was like the last year of the company. And at that point, we were at these crossroads at the end of those four years. And what's next? Do we either raise additional funding and try to push through this and really build something different? Um, or do we, do we keep suffering for another year or two years or three years? And that was the point that we actually got acquired by Mapbox, the uh, mapping company in San Francisco. The starting phase. So, Paul, we just talked about the beginning of Human. Uh, you started Usabilla in 2009. It was post-financial crisis. C- can you explain a bit the startup landscape back then? Which landscape? I was <laughs> 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 uh, sort of half kidding. I, I, it's funny. I, I, there was not really like a startup ecosystem that I was part of that moment. As in, I'm, I'm sure there was like generations of founders and a great landscape, but I wasn't w- aware of any of that. I was, I was a student in Tilburg at the university, and there was like a university entrepreneurship center where I could get a desk and I could start. And, and I remember getting an introduction to some people in Amsterdam and getting on a train to sort of start building my network. And I also remember one of those conversations uh, with, a, with, a, with another uh, entrepreneur who said, I said, oh, you should turn that company, you should turn that into a SaaS company. And I sort of, I thought, what the fuck is SaaS? <laughs> What does that mean? I, re- I literally so I was as green as, as you could be. Yeah. Um, I, I remember the so, first time someone told me about onboarding. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, and, what are they talking about? It's just about? a very different no world. Idea. And for me, sort of, especially the relation with me, sort of there was definitely sort of, I can imagine there was a, a living ecosystem, a very amazing ecosystem at that point, especially around the dot-com bubble in Amsterdam. At least that's what I've been told. But for me at that point, it was sort of, I was just like a naive student uh, starting like a company and starting to sort of figure out how to build something. And I bumped into like great investors very early and, and they helped me sort of think more through the, the business and what I was doing, but I didn't have any clue. What was the problem, Paul? Because in those time we also met, right? I think you were pitching at peak. Yeah, yeah. I still see you pitching there. I still have that view. You stood there because there was a big screen, but you chose to present on your laptop. I still recall that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember it? Also? Yeah, I, I remember being in, in that room. Yeah. Being in yeah. a room, yeah. yeah. And, and we were sitting there, right, at peak, uh, th- those days at peak capital with the five uh, founders of peak. And 
I recall you pitching. What was at that, those days the problem that you were si- trying to solve with Usabilla? I think the sort of the very early spark for Usabilla was literally a group assignment at university. So I had to come up with a quick way to test a prototype or a concept. And I was just looking at that point, I was looking at all these different methods to do that. And they were all time consuming and involved like physical, like contact with real human beings. As in walking into a lab and interviewing people and then sort of making notes about that. And I just thought as a student, I'm not going to do this. This is not how I want to spend my time. So I came up with a way, I, one of the methods to do that was a method for text evaluation. So you'd give a piece of paper to a group of people and you would ask them to put pluses and minuses on top of the piece of paper. And then afterwards you would ask them, hey, why did you put a plus and a minus here? And that was the spark for usability. So I saw that, I thought, wait a minute, we can do that on a screen as well. And if I would be doing that with like a quick prototype, I can collect X, Y coordinates on your screen and I can start making heat maps. And back in those days, heat maps were really cool and was like a great visualization. And I was at that point working for local SMEs, helping them optimize their websites and such. And one of the challenges that we had was that everyone was thinking about campaigns. So you would build a website and it was done. But the real sort of was the early days of doing like more recurring loops and sort of lean uh, lean type methodology and figuring out sort of testing, optimizing, improving. So that was sort of the, the, the ecosystem that we tried to target because if you would constantly collect feedback, you could also constantly improve. And if you would wake up to new feedback every single day as a marketeer or a web, web builder, that would help us actually sort of sell you something and sell, sell our service to you. So the idea was, can we do all day activity or can we do all day all, sort of everyday feedback on a web page? sort of on a live website without you having to worry about anything or setting up any research. So no effort. So you wake up to new feedback every single day and sort of the Trojan horse that we that we built, which is a little bit of a common theme for what I'm doing in, in general in companies. And, and there were no competitors doing the same thing back then? There were, there were like survey tools, so there's SurveyMonkey and, and others, <laughs> right? So I, I remember making a deck for like the first pitch deck and the deck that you probably have seen, uh, Johan, um, Included like a sort of, sort of back then you could still include like an exit slide on your deck because no one told you not to do it. Uh, but there was an exit slide in that deck, and that was actually one of the one of the companies on there was was SurveyMonkey. I had Campile, like different types of tools to collect feedback on a website, but none of them were intuitive or were in, like sparking joy when you would actually leave some feedback on a web, website. And I believe it was more an agency-like business model those days, right? Was it? Uh, no, we started really for early days. I, I remember that I had conversations with our early investors that they wanted to f- sort of push us to do some uh, some consultancy services around it. Uh, but it was always sort of subscription-based. And and one of the ideas that we had back then, sort of uh, taken from the base campus, and you should turn this into a SaaS company. What is a SaaS company? Uh, swipe your credit card and go. Um, so the very early days of Usabilla was very focused on can we sell an online subscription and do this mm-hmm. with credit card based business. So doing yearly subscriptions initially because it was easier to build and then later monthly subscriptions. Um, and the very first accounts were like $50 or $199 and sort of at the point sort of like four years in, we had like a recurring sort of the very first product that we built was one-off feedback. So you would set up a test and collect feedback and then you would do it again and again and again. Uh, in order to make it better, we needed to build like a recurring loop and doing mm-hmm. it always. And that's the point that sort of the company really had product market fit. Indeed. And that's actually the point that I actually, that I sort of left. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Johan, just as a sidestep, as you uh, can vividly remember Paul pitching to you 
back then. And, and the reason is he's a great pitcher because that's what you remember after, uh, indeed, what is it, uh, 15 years. Yeah, and, and uh, thousands of pitches. Thousands <laughs> of pitches, indeed. So do you remember the reason why you didn't chose to invest back then? Yeah, because we felt, that. that's why I asked, because we felt it's... it's, it's Wasn't because more, of the tiny screen. It, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it made his story even bigger, right? Especially <laughs> Paul is shining out, uh, standing out from the rest. But uh, no, I think it's mainly because we had the feeling that it was an agency business at that those days. And I think, I don't have the notes for, from then anymore, but that we felt it could be like that we invest into an agency business model. And we were, of course, more into recurring SaaS models. Well, I so, think at the point that we pitched you, there was also not like a, that, that recurring loop yet. So no, for yeah. us, sort of in the first... I'd say two, three years of the company we were doing because we had this this vision on how we could do feedback on live websites. But the actual thing that we were doing until then were surveys. Mm -hmm. So you would set up like research and they would collect feedback uh, and then you would have to do it again. So it fit like an agency, definitely like an agency model in that sense. Yeah. A lot of agencies would be using our product. And then like when we technically could sort of sort of realize our vision, that's the moment that we sort of suddenly that entire business model changed and, and the entire business started flying. At that point, you decided to it, it was time to, to take a step back and we're going to focus on the growth phase of both uh, usability and human in, in a second. Was the early phase differently for, for human? Did you had different challenges or were they more or less the same? I think they were more or less the same. It's it's funny, sort of. I you have this picture of like if you do it again, some things are easier. But for me, in, in this particular case, I, the difference was I was a little bit less naive on some fronts. So sort of, I knew a little bit better about sort of. I at least knew how what a, the difference between a cash flow statement and a balance sheet, for example. I I literally hadn't didn't have any business clue when I started Usabilla. Um, I never hired anyone. I never had to fire anyone. Sort of all these things were new, and that was different when I started Human. The difference, sort of, the, what was the same is that we were so resource constrained that even if I would know how to do it better, I wouldn't have the resources to do do anything or much different. And it was just constantly. So we we had relatively really little capital, and and sort of because it was just hard to raise for the thing that we were building. In hindsight, smart maybe, but sort of at that point, it was just that part was really challenging. So as an entrepreneur, it was really I think human both human and usability came from very deep. I think technically on paper, usability should have been bankrupt at least two or three times uh, in the four years that I was part of it. Um, I started as a solo founder. We raised some capital, but it sort of was also again really hard to raise capital for that type of business, being a first-time founder and not having enough to prove yet. So I definitely sort of recall those pitch meetings and and having a lot of those, um, and then some, somewhere along the way having to sort of ask my girlfriend if we would if there would be something that we could do, and, and I was already not paying any rent for for months in a row, right? So at that point. With human, at least, you were also a big shareholder in, in Usabilla. Yeah. Did Did you at one point at least consider maybe selling your shares? To I actually did sell a little bit of shares. Yeah. Yeah. So I sold a little bit, of, like a little, little, just a tiny sliver of shares, somewhere in I think my second, my third year when I took over the the role of like CEO at, at Human, and we made the founder uh, split. Um, that's when I sort of knew, sort of at that point, my wife was pregnant, my girlfriend back then. She was pregnant, so we sort of had this ticking time bomb, uh, <laughs> financially at least. And that was also the moment that we sort of realized, okay, up until that point, I'd, I was totally free to do whatever I wanted and, and sort of we could survive on a single starter salary. And so sort of, that's fine. It was not, not pleasant, but we did. 
We did that for like most of our my working career at least. Um, but then we wanted to have at least some buffer and being able to at least pay my own salary for even if it would be like just a fraction, like a low, like the minimum salary that I needed and have that freedom to do what we needed to do. And that's that's when I sold just a tiny sliver of Mapbox or I use a shares um, to actually fund myself and, and my business. Just this and, your, and your kiddo. And my kiddo, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and sort of there was no like amazing sort of uh, how do you call it? The, 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 so her room was pretty Spartan initially. <laughs> Did this make me think about our first episode? This is our tenth. Congratulations! Yeah, thank you. Congratulations to you too <laughs> so <laughs> for making to it so for making it this far with me. <laughs> but uh, in our first episode, we talked to Geert Jan from Flinders, mm-hmm. who had to s- who had to sell his house at one I point. I actually pitched him as well. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> cool. He sold his house to fund uh, the inventory at Flinders. He told us, "Is this common for founders?" Uh, as you speak to a lot of them, of course, is this common to go Not through these like really grinding? Uh, not not times. always, but it, it it shows grit, right? It shows, I think, a deep grit in founders if they do. And and, and what I what Paul says, especially if your personal situation changes, right? And you're gonna have kids, and your company is not that far. Then you are searching for how can I make a little bit, take something from the tables on yep. that end, and to see how I can work it out for myself. So it's I think it's very common. I think it's also very normal to do it, right? Because uh, I think Paul, you've shown a few times, re- really for a long time, grit also being. Uh, uh, taking that company further through to... As, as actually, as an investor, it's the single one thing that I'm looking for. And that's so much that yeah. people have sort of, you often read about skin in the game or sort of being able to put in your own money or such. I'm, I, I'm really sort of, I'm allergic to that. Mm-hmm. But I do think that sort of technically both human and usability, sort of there were very sort of, there were along the way so many different points in time that it actually would have been the much more reasonable to actually just quit and, and not do it. And... Um, we did not, and sort of as a team, and also me personally, and I think that's one of the traits for me personally that helped me succeed and, and got sort of in hindsight successful. But it's also the name that you have in the market, right? Also yeah, working and, with, and, and that's just sort of like maybe I'm not sure if we're going to talk about it, but like sort of the, the the like the exit for a human in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, that was for us not like the ultimate outcome or not the expected outcome, but the way we solved it, I don't feel bad about asking any of the people that were involved to work together again, whether it's employees or whether it's the investors or whether it's the company that bought us. Mm -hmm. I think that's the type of stuff that is way more important than anything else. So people often focus on the like the success of your company and financial outcome or in sort of market cap or it doesn't mm-hmm. matter that much. But I think the way you build it is actually the real legacy. So a little bit less about sort of what you actually might might or might not achieve because there's a big component of luck there as well. But along the way, the way you treat people, the way you treat your partners, the way you work with your customers, that's the real legacy that will sort of, that, will, that you build upon. And I think that's to me the most important thing to focus on. One question before we go to the growth phase. Maybe more of a question to you in general, <laughs> somewhat of a life advice to founders listening. How do you know when enough is enough? Because as you mentioned, it was really tough, it was really tough raising funding. Some of the early reviews of Human <laughs> weren't that good. Geert Jan, which we, we just talked about, he just launched a new company last year. He mentioned in the podcast, he, after a year, he already quit because he, he figured, well, it is not going to work. Yeah. You kept going with Human at least. How do you know? When enough is enough as a founder? Um, I think that really depends on your, I would say, what is your threshold? How much can you stand? Uh, how much are you willing to stand? And how much is reasonable to stand for you in this phase of your life? 
I think for me personally, if I think back about sort of when was enough enough in like periods of time, sort of if for a longer time frame, it actually doesn't make any sense for you anymore. You don't no longer get any energy out of it. It no longer sort of when you wake up, you're excited about the work that you're doing. And then sort of, of course, sort of everyone's personal financial situation is very different. And, and that to me started only started playing a role when I got like my first kid. Um, and that definitely changed how I would look at sort of the the baseline of things that I need to get in order in order to do this. And sort of up until that point, I found it totally reasonable not to go on vacation. I found it totally reasonable not to be able to go out for a dinner. I found it totally reasonable to um, spend less time with my friends or family at points in time. Um, because I could sort of, I could handle that because it, it made up for it because I was so much enjoying everything that I was doing, right, mostly. And of course, very definitely dark periods as well. But if those good days outweigh the bad days, then then it's totally fine. And if you can sort of, I typically sort of had one rule of thumb is that I would never go into depth more than I would be able to repay in roughly a year. So I always joke that worst case, I need to start working for someone else and I'll actually make a salary. Uh, worst case, I will make a salary that actually can pay off any of the debt that I might or might not make along the way within less than a year. That was my rule of thumb. So never more than that. So I had some personal loans along the way, sort of different phases of the company. Uh, but I would be able to cover those easily. I would never have any sort of handcuffs after the fact because that would actually limit me in, in my career again. So my, the, the standard running joke that I had with my wife is that worst case, I would be flipping burgers at McDonald's and would make more money. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the energy level you mentioned, right? Because I think every founder runs into the problem that sometimes you don't have enough energy and doesn't see the big picture anymore and doesn't yeah. feel. And you. So how do you measure that? Because you mentioned also the majority of the day should be good. Yeah, I think what? typically sort of other people would describe me as being pretty obsessed. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be positive, but it's also often maybe it's not positive. Um, I really get obsessed with the types of problems that I try to solve and whether that sort of could be team related, could be sort of product related. It's often product related in the early, early phases of the company. And I get so obsessed. Like last week, we had like a breakthrough with the, with the stuff that we're working on, and then sort of I, I just can't put it away. So that I can't stop thinking about it, and it's literally it's an obsession. Um, and I know that if I have a face like that, that I have to recover a bit from it afterwards. So I can sprint really hard on a specific topic or on a specific challenge, uh, or trying to sort of like fundraising with all the uncertainties and such. To me personally, despite the, all the no's that I got over the course of my career, actually, in hindsight, I do think I enjoyed most of it. And what I didn't enjoy was the waiting game and not being in control. But everything leading up to it, being in control actually gives me a great sense of sort of, that's what I, I that really sort of, that gives me a lot of energy. If I don't have that or if I feel like I can't recover from those types of sprints, so if I go really deep or hard and sort of really sort of almost like break myself over a course of, let's say, a week or two weeks of really intense obsession almost, if I wouldn't be able to recover from that, then I know that I'm sort of either went too deep, so I need mm. more time to recover, mm -hmm. or I need to actually figure a different sort of modus operandi and, and do something else. And, and it could be sometimes team-related, and maybe there's challenges that I solve that I actually don't enjoy solving, right? I had that actually working for different, sort of as being part of different scale-ups. So after the acquisition of Human, I worked for Mapbox for two years, another year for Color Genomic, uh, both companies that raised like massive amounts of funding, both hyper-growth, so 150 people growing to 400 people in two years. 
And I just found myself sort of doing the, doing the same thing and working my app because I was getting obsessed again on, on their behalf and helping them solve their types of problems, but I didn't have any control over my rhythm. And I couldn't sort of, sort of chill out for a bit after an intense period. I was just constantly running. And that's the point that I was, I think, out of the past 13 years. That was the point that I actually got close to burnout. And mm. I did pretty sort of challenging things up until that point, but I could easily handle that because... I knew when I go deep, I need to recover. Yeah. And so for me, that balance is really important. And taking that control, right? Also having yeah. that control. Yeah, and that yeah. control gives me like so some periods of time I, I have less of that. And But in general, sort of just as like personal, personal uh, my family's number one. Also, when I worked for other companies, I on my calendar, time, family time is blocked. So after this, I'll be going, oh, I'll be sort of spending time. There. I never miss a dinner. I know that I need to exercise. And if those two are taken care of, then whatever sort of is left over is going to be my work and I'm going to b- better enjoy it. And that's also the recovery time that you mentioned, time with your family. Yeah, and yeah and some, but sometimes even family time might not be recovering, right? Mm-hmm. You just need sort of, I need to be by myself on my road bike and, and enjoying the outdoors or something yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah, but it's just in general, just taking good care of yourself. You feel like you no longer can recover from the thing that you're doing, even mm-hmm. if it's not the most fun thing at that point. I think that's that's the time to move on. The growth phase. Now, I read a really good quote from you on the worldwide interwebs. Make no small plans, for they have no power to steer the soul. Yeah, it was actually printed on the wall of Usabella when we started. And it's, it's such actually, a beautiful quote. It's at, it's I think it's attributed to uh, Machiavelli, but it's actually not Machiavelli. So I'm not sure whose original quote it is. It's actually my my own personal uh, holding company is called MNSP. So it sort of it tell, tells you a little bit about sort of what I like to do. I think in general, sort of if you think about sort of what you're building and how you present it, you just joke that I um, I knew how to pitch. Um, I think that's it, right? So a lot of it, sort of as an entrepreneur, is about storytelling and and helping, sort of trying to see if the excitement that you have about something and or a vision that you have about what the world could look like, trying to get it, get that across either to team members, getting that across to investors, getting that across to customers. Um, doesn't matter as long as you know how to sort of tell that story, and then ideally you also know how to actually put that sort of make that true and. That balance is, I think, being able to tell a story helps you better craft it. And everything that you, in terms of product, often people think about the technology that you're building. But a lot of what you're building in terms of product founder is actually the positioning and sort of trying to sort of build towards, I think, Mark's sister and one of the investors, an amazing, sort of well-known investor, he published this amazing blog post about investors invest in lines and not in dots. Uh, which actually means that there is this storyline that you need to craft. That's that that's a great metaphor for product building, for team building. Sort of everyone needs to buy in on like the long term plan as well. Now you lived in San Francisco for a couple of years, um, uh, and people always say it's the Valhalla of uh, of of startups and and people who think big. And uh, and uh, here's to the crazy ones from Steve Jobs. Was that the case, or is Ooh. the reality a bit? Uh, I, have a, I have a little bit of like a love-hate relationship with San Francisco. I feel incredibly lucky that I had, was able to spend time there. And sort of, it was definitely sort of, there was this point in like in my life that I could easily pack up my bags and, and go there and actually live there for three years. And I feel incredibly lucky that I did. And and mostly in hindsight, so sort of, I could imagine that if I would not have then sort of 10 years later, I would have looked back and shit, I should have done that at that point in time, right? So we did and and sort of, 
we absolutely enjoyed living in San Francisco. I sort of was like, um, it is indeed like a very special place in terms of talent and sort of the types of companies. But I also realized that it's that type of talent and that type, those types of companies you also have in Europe. And, and they're amazing sort of, the, I don't think that the talent sort of here is different than what you have in San Francisco. They're only really good at selling it, right? So I think that's mm -hmm. one. The density of talent is of course really high. But at the same time, the counter of the American dream is sort of success is a choice. If you're not successful, too bad for you. And at a personal level, I find that really hard. So I just knew that that was not the place where I want my kids to grow up. And I also didn't actually feel like actively contributing to a society like that. Um, so going back to Europe in that sense felt to me really like going back to Europe. And it made me even more aware of what we have here and sort of how we can benefit from like a like a better equal system for everyone um, and that we should protect that and actually try to make it better for everyone and actually create equal opportunities in a way that sort of, I'm not the only one who's lucky uh, to be in a position that I can start a company like like uh, like Usabella or like Detail or like, uh, like Human. Um, we should actually encourage other people to do the same. So getting back to Europe feels very much like coming home in that sense. Um, it's long. The question was, how do we like San Francisco, right? I very much enjoyed it. What, what made you realize the two differences, right? Be, being yeah. successful, which is your choice, and being not successful? What made yeah, you I was that? on the lucky side, right? Sort of, uh, we, we landed very safely in San Francisco um, with a great sort of job offer for Mapbox as part of a talent acquisition. And sort of, we, I got a generous option package and I, I made like an obscene salary, at least in my sort of, up until that point, I never made any salary. So <laughs> Suddenly got yeah. like a salary, and there was actually someone paying that for multiple months in a row, which was spectacular. Yeah. Um, and I was living there with my family in in, in an apartment, which was a, like a typical two bedroom um, apartment on the ground floor, uh, let's say seventy five square meters, and I would pay roughly five thousand yeah. dollars in rent. And I'm, I'm, I was, if I were only joking, then we would pay another 500 bucks for the health insurance, which was already covered by the actual company that I worked for, the other half or the other two thirds. And then my my son, this, my second kid was born in San Francisco in the hospital. And after the like after that, you could still get a bill of four thousand or five thousand dollars, right? And then our car would get towed over Christmas because we didn't move it because of street parking. We sort of okay, stupid. Uh, and to pick it up, I had to pay fifteen hundred bucks, <laughs> and my kids would go to school, and I have to, I would have to pay nineteen hundred a month uh, to actually yeah. get them in daycare three days a week. Yeah. So if you add all these things up, sort of that type of stuff is just not sort of sustainable. And I was on the lucky side because I was able to afford most of those things. I wasn't able to save significantly, but I could afford this with my family. But then seeing sort of other people around you trying to live in the same city and sort of being slammed with these types of amounts. That's just not like a, that's not not a place where you sort of actually have equal opportunity, and, mm. and that to me is just that really dampened the joy about being in San Francisco and the joy of having like the amazing city and the outdoors, and and that's like an American problem in general. And Indeed. and I think if we're if we're not careful, we would be getting short like things in Europe, and, yeah. and so without making too much about politics, no, but, no. yeah. <laughs> Hey, Paul, with Usabilla, there was a moment in time when you stepped back as a CEO and asked your CTO to take over your position. Yeah. Can you, can you describe that moment? What was the reason for you to do so? And, and, and how did you manage that st stepping back as a CEO and to leave the company to somebody else? I, I sometimes still sort of wonder how I managed to do that. It's sort of half joking. Um, 
So after about four years, I became to realize that I was really almost getting in the way of the growth of the company. So we were sort of at this point where the product was evolving as something that could actually fit an enterprise sales model. And I just knew that that was the thing that we needed to do. And so the part of me almost sort of, I saw myself getting in the car and selling this to major major corporations, initially in the Netherlands and such. And I had this almost like reality distortion. I, I felt like I was building an online business and transaction and doing like scalable credit card transactions online. And suddenly it turns out, hey, this is enterprise sales. And after that sort of, through different points in my career, in the end, in the end everything is enterprise sales. I often joke that also to, <laughs> to the startups pitching to me now as an, as an investor. But at that point, it was enterprise sales, and I just didn't see myself doing that in the best possible way. And at the same time, sort of, there was this amazing sort of person that a good friend of mine, Mark, who joined me and took a little bit of convincing early days to get him to join. But when we raised, we raised 750 euro, okay, euros. At that point, it was comfortable enough for him to join. He had like a good job and like working at Ernst and Young, and he had some special education that was pretty expensive that he needed to pay off and we could actually afford him finally, which was great. And he sort of was just really something, someone who I trusted deeply also because we go way back and we were actually friends and still friends. So I knew that sort of if this was the type of business that we needed to build, that I would, I, I should just get out of the way. And mm-hmm. I actually, I don't think I, maybe I needed to convince him. It needed a little bit of convincing, I think. Um, but he was actually really eager just to give it, give it another try, just like I did later with, with Human and sort of, okay, if this is what we think we should be doing, then... So I made sure that, the, that he and um, Roel, who also joined at the same time, was the commercial director of the company, um, that they were sort of incentivized and that mm-hmm. sort of a part of my stock would, would end up in their hands because I was a solo founder until that point. Um, so it was almost like four years after like starting the company, like we had two new co-founders in the company that wanted to that were willing to take over. And they just did an amazing, spectacular job in growing the company and very almost like Mark in that sense might be a little bit of a part of Mark is almost like the opposite of me. He's much more patient and sort of I was like the the restless founder that just keep kept going at it. And He's like very pragmatic and he had the patience that we needed at that point to actually build like the machine to go after. And they started with sort of scaling, sort of I helped them scale down the team before I left. So they had at least sort of the longest runway that we could squeeze out of the funding that we got. (laughs) And I just gave them just enough to work towards break even. And from that moment on, sort of every single target, they just hit year after year. And without any additional funding, so they sort of when I was there, we raised 750k euros, and we never raised again after that, and that got them to an exit of 80 million to SurveyMonkey, which is sort of spectacular. (laughs) Sort of, sort of that's not the sort of most of the times when you read about these types of stories, they raise significantly more to actually hit our targets along the way. This was just sort of. Exactly, Mark and Rule. You, you see their character and the way they executed towards that sort of the bringing up the patience, being very sort of laser focused on doing the right thing, um, and and it's just hit it out of the park. And how did you manage? Because you stepped away as a CEO, right, owning the majority of the shares at that time. The angels at that time stepped in. Uh, you had two friends, sorry, one friend working in a company, and indeed the other guy, uh, sorry, the commercial guy, also joined. But how did you? felt and how did you dealt especially with the situation that you stepped away from the company it was promising because indeed there was funding raised what you've been trying yeah, at that point sort of I, th- I think the the company at that point was definitely not looking good 
it's not that I I wouldn't say that I made a mess, but sort of we we it took us a while to build like a, to build the product that we wanted to build, and sort of there were like a f- few sort of things that we tried in the meantime and didn't really resonate. But we just knew that sort of there might be something there, and that it felt a little bit like okay, let's try this for six more months and see if we can actually sort of grow that revenue. There was like a tiny bit of revenue out of a different business line, and that just needed to grow into enterprise revenue. And at that point, it was sort of for me, it was clear that that wasn't wasn't the challenge that I needed to solve. That it was someone else, and that the focus that I have on, on like the pure product side and, and building something. Sort of, there was enough product to sell. Let's just sell it, and sort of there was enough roadmap ready to actually sort of execute. And they, sh- they should be fine if if they were at least sort of uh, frugal. But the investors, not all of them, agreed. Of course, and no. sort of, you can imagine that yeah. they invested like a year before, one and a half years before I left. So I stayed on for about one and a half years. And at that point, sort of, I need to convince them that this was the best thing for the company. And it was also, of course, the best thing for me. And not really because I didn't have any financial sort of, as in, I had savings for three months. That was about it. <laughs> um, and and it also felt a little bit like giving up, but not really. So I made myself available to Mark and, and Will in this case. I stayed on for two days a week. And I actually convinced the investors that this that Mark was the best person to do this. And my take on that was that the only way that Mark could do this was if he would actually be in control. As in, he should take over the company. And from this moment on, it's you and you will be making these decisions. I'll be at your disposal. I'm, I'm going to be here for you if you need anything from me. But you tell me what I should be doing and how I can best support you. And I will give my opinion. And he knows me very well. So he definitely knows that I have opinions and that I'll be giving them regardless. But it was all the decisions that were being made from that moment on were Mark's decisions. And I think that sort of within a very short time span, while I was still on the background and I was still, I was, of course, I was working two days or three days a week on the company and I made myself available also to talk to customers and to go into the field. And sort of that was also the promise that I made to the investors. But the investors very quickly saw the impact that Mark was making and and how he started building like a different type of company and the company like the the operational entity that we needed at that point. Um, So he just quickly proved himself. And I think it took some of the investors, one in particular, I think it was like three-fourth of them were were happy and excited about the move. And I I still remember one of them was just so incredibly mad with me that he was just (laughs) sort of, he literally, he was a London-based investor and I showed up in the office to explain the plan and how we would be doing this. And I had a, we had a plan. And so there was, and I already did my like the, the arena before I walked into that office because I knew this would be a tough one. Uh, so all the other, other investors, I already had the backing of them and I made sure that the decision was already clear. But I basically sort of went to London to explain him. And I think within five minutes, I was outside again. <laughs> and he literally, he just threw me back on the street and he told me, you're pissing away other people's money. And this is sort of, this is not how you how you do this. And in hindsight, sort of when we were closing the deal of SurveyMonkey, it turned out to be great for everyone, right? And I think that's the type of sort of deals that- But what was he mad about? Did, did he felt like you were jumping ship? Yeah, yeah, he really felt like I was jumping ship and that I sort of didn't fulfill my promise as a as a founder. And that was a really tough sort of, I, I remember walking out of that office and thinking, holy fuck, what just happened here? And I can imagine. Yeah? I would react the same way, right? If yeah. you invest in a company and then the CEO was really the owner and the, and the face. Yeah, and, and I was like, the only founder at that point, right? And he didn't know Mark that well. Yeah. So I, I, could, I, I could, in hindsight, I could totally relate. And sort of the only thing that sort of he, at, at that point, he just, he didn't, 
trust me to make the right decision. And and in hindsight, it's obviously I made the right decision. But at that point, it was of course not obvious that that was the right decision. And if if that would have gone the other way, then I'm I'm pretty sure that I burned some bridges there. But I think it was the right decision, and and it turned out to be the right decision. Um, but it took a while for sort of some some of the investors were super supportive and from the get go and and they trusted sort of because probably because they also experienced Mark as and they had some conversations with him and he knew what he was capable of. In in hindsight, could you have done it differently? Because Jan says that that he would be mad as well. Uh, would it make a difference if you have said, well, I want to pick a new CEO, but I'll be staying on full time? Yeah, that, I, I think I've, if I, even if I would have done that, I'm not sure that's going to help. And I think that's one of the things that I just learned out of all of this. You can't do it well. You sort of can't keep everyone happy. Um, and and I'm really happy that I didn't, in hindsight in particular. But I do remember walking out on the London streets and thinking, oh, fuck, what just happened? Okay, <laughs> what should I be doing now? Let's call the other two investors. Let's make sure that sort of at least the two others that sort yeah. of, that I prepared this conversation because I prepared the conversation with them sort of know that that this is going to happen. And I called one of the other investors. I, I still remember that I was pretty like shaken almost. So sort of, fuck, okay, shit, okay, now I need to sort of, okay, how am I going to solve this? And I called the investor and told him, uh, you remember sort of conversation that we had and how we prepared this? Uh, he just kicked me on the street. What should? What do you think we should be doing? With, with, because you brought him in, right? And then sort of, oh, wait a minute. Uh, I think he's calling now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, okay, let him cool down for a bit. Uh, we'll talk later. Um, so what, what, can you explain again what happened? <laughs> uh, so it was a very surreal situation and, 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 and it just took some time for him to get around and sort of that quickly uh, went better as well. But I do think that sort of when I was in the board meetings later, it sometimes felt a little bit awkward. Because, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. but I, th- I think you, you touch also on a very good topic, right? Because on the one hand, you should have grit, right? And uh, be for the company and do whatever you can to be there. But on the other hand, you need also need, especially in a CEO role, and if you run the company, you need some kind of energy and belief also in it. And if you feel that the company is going into a direction that you're not the right guy anymore, yeah. and you have the right guy in the team, then I think you should indeed communicate that to your investor. But in this case, of course, you just raised uh, one year before uh, indeed some funding. And normally you have a vesting schedule then, right? So if you will leave... They have to uh, let a few uh, part yeah. of your share go, but you already arranged that with your CTO. Well, right? at that point, you also sort of—I think—I've been in other, on the other side of that yeah. equation myself as well. I think a lot of this is also being pragmatic about what Indeed. you're doing next, right? And sort of, I—I uh, I built that company for four years. The product that they were executing on at that point was the, the exact product that we pitched to the investors, and it was definitely in their interest also that I would be at least be backing them and be support them and sort of. Uh, and that's key because in the in that situation fully agree with you i mean it happens we we also had it a few times and i think it's key that indeed the ceo or the guy who's leaving also has a good feeling about it and that he keeps on backing the company right the exit phase well we talked a lot about gisabella which exited in 2019 to serve a monkey but also about human which exited in 2016 to mapbox which one shall we pick first? <laughs> I, th- I think human. I think that's, okay. re- that's really interesting because indeed human is a company, of course, Paul, that you built from the start all the way to the exit. You were yeah. there leading, etc. Can you describe indeed how that went, especially on the exit side? Because it has been a f- uh, few rough y- years for you, Oof, I recall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we, we were sort of at a point in time we had like, we, we knew at, we raised some additional capital. We knew that our uh, funding would be running out in let's say three or fun- four months from now. So this time we were a little bit sort of sooner in 
and realizing what was going on. And at that point, we knew that we either had to raise capital again or would go for plan B. And we had this idea that we could build like a massive company, but we're also very realistic after four years that if it didn't work out, that we needed to make sure that we made a soft landing somewhere. And that soft landing to me, I had like hard requirements because we had conversations with like Apple and Google and, and others in, the, in, in San Francisco because we were... At that point, a lot of folks knew what we were building and we got applauded for the work that we were doing as a mobile team. And mobile teams at that stage were pretty rare, sort of like world-class talent in, in that sense of that's what people sort of perceived us as. And sort of Especially think, Apple's the year developers. Yeah, and sort of, so there was like a, we were like a, uh, an awarded app and sort of, I think we were pretty good at what we were doing, at least on the on the building side. Um, I, I think this is way too modest. I, uh, Paul was being named by everybody. If you want to have a great, I wouldn't say interface, but experience, yeah. Paul was on the list, right? So I think that's your talk a little you, bit yeah. about uh, now, Paul. Well, yeah. From my perspective, was it only for iOS or was it also for Android? We initially started with iOS and that was playing the Apple game because they like exclusivity. Um, and later we introduced uh, Android and sort of our team, actually the iOS engineers started building Android as well, which is pretty insane. <laughs> um, but we just knew that we, if we wanted, if we couldn't make it by ourselves, we should search for an exit. Yeah. And the exit for us, we started making a list of things that we actually wanted to get out of that very early and I had very sort of our ex- entire team knew exactly what was going on in terms of finance and such. So we had so, com- so you were actively looking for an exit. Some founders are I, building I a was, company and well, a that, phone call comes. N- yeah, well, well, in this case, we already had like a lot of phone calls along the way. And that's sort of that's the point that we started taking some of those calls and stuff, okay. And, and for two reasons. One is the types of companies that were reaching out to us were a lot of them were like Series B uh, type companies. So they just raised enough money to be able to afford a a small talent acquisition. But those founders are also great founders to talk with and get advice from and and brainstorm with and get introductions to their investors. And if they vet you and you have great conversations and they like the team, sort of that conversation actually goes often two ways. Because if they introduce you to their investors, it's actually a way to sort of, hey, if we would be buying this company, then at least you already know them. And And the other one for us, it was like looking for an investment and trying to get our like uh, basically like a a proper seed round or a series A uh, done. And Mapbox, not everyone will know it, is an American provider of custom online maps for websites and applications such as Foursquare, Lonely Planet, and the Financial Times, uh, or even Snapchat. They, they have a revenue over 100 million, and they have, uh, have more than 600 employees. So they're they're a big company. Yeah. They raised to 50 million. Yeah, they raised. They raised 50, and later 100, and another 100. I think something like that. Just astronomical amounts from SoftBank and others. When we came in, they just raised the Series B, so they were they raised 60 million. Um, and, and they called you, or did you reach out to, the, to them? They, they they reached out to us because we started publishing our map data, and it was a way to get attention to our product in terms of usage, and mostly two types of companies that might be interested in what we're doing. So it was a little bit showing off. <laughs> um, we won a, accidentally won a Webby Award with a data visualization about real-time data. But they reached out because they saw our data and because we were using their SDK. So we were using um, their technology to build the maps in human in our app. So if you look at your human data and your your activity data, you would look at Mapbox maps. So we became a little bit like the poster child of their mobile implementation. And they saw the app and they just really loved the interface and they were really happy with what we're doing. And everywhere, if they would talk to Snap, for example, might have been part of those conversations, they would show human as one of the reference implementations. 
So they saw exactly how much data we were processing because when they were when we implemented their SDK, they would collect a little bit of anonymous data as well. So each time that someone would load the map, they would see it. And that would help them to build better traffic data because that traffic data is based on real-time devices. So the more people are using Mapbox maps, the better your traffic becomes. So there was a little bit of anonymous data floating through that pipeline. That pipeline that they built was actually the very same that we built. And ours was better. <laughs> so that was sort of a little bit like the, the challenge. We started picking a fight with them initially because when we implemented their 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 technology into our app, suddenly our better usage that we've been fighting for so long on, so I think that's where the conversation started, suddenly doubled. As in suddenly we, we used double as much battery. And so we optimized for for three, four years, and suddenly we saw like a, like, like a spike in battery consumption of the app, which was not okay, and it was not sort of what we expected. So we picked a fight with them, and then sort of we actually helped them improve the implementation and got to know their team and got really excited about sort of meeting them and hanging out. And, and at the same time, the founder, Eric, started introducing me to the investors that invested in Mapbox. So we just knew sort of there was like this relation brewing. At the same time, I knew that I had to create options. Um, so I had conversation with other companies as well. And at that point, we got flown over by Google to sort of meet a Mountain View and have the team catered and like a typical thing that happens. We can talk endless about that as well, but <laughs> I think we're now allowed to talk about it. But but I just didn't see myself getting on a bus, you know, sort of living in San Francisco and then getting on a bus every single day to work on something that would never be shipped. And at the same time, there was this tiny little company with a, like a very sort of almost brutal, positive, but very energetic founder who said, sort of, we can do this. And so I told him, as in, there are these three things that I need from you if we want to make this happen. If we want to make it happen, we need to do it very quickly because otherwise I have to shop it around to other, other companies. And then I'm pretty sure that they might offer more than what you are able to offer in this stage of your company. But if you make an offer that actually works for everyone, then I'll take it to the team and I'll take it to the investors. I'm going to make it happen because I, I would enjoy working with you. And that was like the starting point of conversation. Two weeks later, we had a term sheet. Um, and I think at that point, when we signed the term sheet, we started working for them, even far before the deal was done. So we were already working with the Mapbox team on their team, and we suddenly got paid again. So all the engineers on our team and the entire team just got like a, a proper pay. And I was negotiating the deal terms in the meeting room, and I would walk back to my new team that I was that was reporting to me and sort of talking about the roadmap for the product, while I still had to get the, the actual deal done and all the terms on paper. You sold the bear before you shoot him. Yeah, no, right. this, yeah, so in this case, it was a consultancy agreement, okay. right? So it was a very weird situation to be in. Yeah. What, what was the reason for you to go exclusively with them at that time, right? Because, because indeed, uh, uh, Google flew you over, you had some yeah. interest from Apple, probably also some other companies. Yeah. Big companies with a lot of budget, with a lot of also money to pay yeah. for human in this case, and, and still you choose to yeah, work. Yeah, we were talking to two smaller companies, and there was a very particular reason, because I didn't want to leave anyone behind. My rule, number one rule was, I want to, I'm, I'm able to talk with you about an acquisition, but there is not a single member on our team that will not make it true. As in, you can interview us, you can interview every single person on my team, but everyone will be hired, or, they, or we're not coming. And that was because we, as a, as a team, went through, like, again, very deep, sort of dark periods. And we enjoyed that together. And I just, I wasn't willing to leave anyone behind. 
And given the fact that it, it was an equi-hire kind of situation, that was really key for you. So, so that was the second sort of check mark on the list. So the first check mark was, I want my team to be taken care of. Second one was, if we're going to do this, I want my investors to be happy. They put in money and I want to make sure that everyone sort of is either now or in the very near future really happy about the deal. So this is what I need to be happy or for them to be happy. And as a founder, I actually distributed my own stock across all the investors. So we made sure that all the investors were sort of taken care of. Um, wow. And then at the end of that, sort of that actually gave everyone like a decent return. So which was made it a great deal for everyone. And then at only at that point, I started negotiating my own terms. And that was for me sort of as a founder. I basically told them as in, hey, there's, if you want me to work for you the next period of time, you have to make me an offer that actually keeps me here. I'm not, not interested in the past um, as long as the rest is taken care of, but sort of just make me a fair offer. And an offer that sort of you think is fair in comparison to the other people on your team and that, that you think that works for my skill set. And they made me an offer, I accepted it without any negotiation. Uh, team offers were on the table, everyone was super happy. Um, and we spent sort of, most of the engineers spent four years working with them. Uh, I spent about two years and then I was just completely done. And most of the other team members like also two, two, two or three years um, of and time. at this point, the app is no longer in existence? Yeah, I think they killed it about a year ago. Yeah, yeah because so. I was looking at the website and it says site yeah. unavailable. Yeah, it was a very sort of weird moment that sort of someone else pulled the plug on the app uh, after like, I think three years. They kept it running for three years, which was amazing. But they should not have, it was probably more difficult to pull the plug than to actually keep it running. Just keep it running for the... Yeah, and at, at some point, it. sort of becomes a little bit like abandonware, right? Sort of initially in the first two years when I was there, we would use the app to test the new versions of the maps. So we would sort of, we'd actually have still quite an audience, uh, quite some people using it. And a lot of people actually loved using the app, even while it was not actively being developed. Um, but it was pretty expensive to run because there was quite some backend infrastructure to, uh, to support. And after a while, no one actually even knew how to get into the infrastructure anymore. So it was like weird that it still actually was possible to use the app. Hey, when in time did you realize that the exit was a equi-hire and not, let's say, the exit what you probably would have hoped for from the beginning? I think from the very first conversation. Uh, I just knew that I had to set up guardrails. And I also didn't even take an attempt to turn that into something bigger. I was in... I just knew that if we're not going to build our own company, then we should optimize for like a great outcome for everyone. And most of all, for how we're going to spend our next three years. And for me personally, at that point in my career, I, I built two tiny companies, right? I, I built two small teams and I never experienced the sort of growth phase of, of like a company. And the, the same for the other team members, right? So we just knew that sort of, let's make sure that the investors are taken care of. But then for the rest, we'll be optimizing for our careers and we're going to look for experience that actually helps us do this again. And that's what we did. So that we spent two years at Mapbox, I spent another year at, at uh, Color, um, and same goes for the other teams. And now the CTO of Human and the first engineer are the founding team of, of Detail again. So I think that op sort of optimizing for, in their case also, being an engineer working for an American, like a San Francisco-based company, getting good stock options, so it was a very, very good job, right? So especially if you live in Canada or if you live in Sweden and you make an American salary. So, What did you learn about this process? Because I think the exit of usability was later. So there was your first official exit, I guess. 
Well, the first, yeah. So Human was the first time that I actually experienced all the paperwork and yeah. the, sort of the, what, the, what, the what, data room and yeah. What surprised you about the process? Because we often hear that first time founders who exit the company are surprised about the huge amounts of paperwork or huge due diligence that's going on, or they, they there were surprises that they didn't expect to happen. Yeah, I think a lot of it boils down to typically the other person in that room has a lot of other people to cater to as well, right? And especially if you think about like a talent acquisition or an acquire or stuff like that, a lot of it boils down to speed uh, and board votes because someone else is sort of actually sort of needs to sign off on the deal. Um, you need to understand their incentives and you need to understand why this company is actually even interested in, in working with you. I also don't, I think in most cases, you don't want to push your luck too much. So it's it's this very interesting dance where you're, negotiating with your future colleagues. And and, you, and that's, that's a bit the Indeed. same with investors, actually. Yeah. But you should also just push, right? Is, is, it, is it differently when it are your future colleagues than when you, you know you're selling the company and you'll leave anyway? You guess that's Yeah, I, I've never experienced in that, in that sense of the, the arm's length uh, sell and selling the technology. But in this case, to me personally, it was understanding how you can make them win as well. And you just know that they're reported. Often it sounds like sort of a, typically a founder also reports to others, right? Sort of me as a founder, sort of I now have a group of investors and of course I, I do what I think is the right thing to do. But if I would go, come in and tell them that I'm going to buy my first company uh, as like, because I, the team is spectacular and I make sure that actually that becomes an easier sell. Yeah. And and I think that was one. I think the other thing that's really challenging in, in a process like this is that you have so many constraints to work with and mostly people to take care of. And for me personally, this was really about the people and especially because it's the size of it, right? So it's a, a transaction like usability is a very financial transaction, right? And still there, I knew sort of because I experienced as a founder what it takes to sell your company. I think what people do not understand is how much effort it takes. And sort of the, use of the human exit was easy, right? It was a piece of paper, sort of like, it's like maybe 150 pages, uh, but not complicated. A lot of work for a small team, but still. But if you compare that to a major acquisition and sort of shopping a deal around and then sort of getting that done while you're building your business and while you do not want to miss any single target, right? Because you're in the process of selling. I also want to have the optionality to actually pull out of it with all kinds of clauses that might prevent you from doing so. It's just a different ballgame. So every single time that I now see an announcement of an acquisition, then I think, wow, deep respect for the people that pulled that off because it's, just, it's really hard. And even the smallest one is already hard, but you can imagine that it sort of exponentially increases when the size of that deal increases. So I think that sort of, I have deep sort of insane respect for, for example, Mark and Rule being able to pull that off like for usability. Because I know, sort of, one this time I've witnessed it, right? I tried to support them as good as I could, and being on their side as like for, sort of supporting them as a friend and 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 a board member. But even like a talent acquisition is is really hard. And I still remember that there were people having an opinion about that after we sold Human, right? They had an opinion about us selling out or yet another Dutch startup selling out. Yeah, to, I recall also the press. So that the, the, type the, of shit. Yeah, sort of, sorry, in, no, just yeah. kidding. <laughs> well, well, I think that's that's the, the nearly, if you make those types of statements, first of all, most people that make a statement like that definitely not built something themselves and they never sort of were in that position. And if they were, then it's even worse probably. 
But if you make a statement like that, sort of, it just shows how little you understand what went into it to actually get to that point. And not only sort of the, the actual acquisition, but also everything leading up to that. So if a team after four years of trying actually sells their company and sort of I celebrate it, I'm, I'm happy for them that they made sort of whatever the outcome was, whether it was a fire sale that sort of that didn't get, get anyone any return, I wouldn't care. Also as an investor, by the way. I would sort of, I would hope that they sort of land somewhere safely, Indeed. that they enjoy their time, yeah. that they get a lot of, sort of um, new insights, and I most of all hope that on a personal level they don't have too too much of a scar, and it's up to to other people to get those. Mm. Yeah. In a bit, we'll hear the guesstimation from Peak on how uh, how, how much yeah, how much human was sold to Mapbox or guesstimation, but I am wondering how did you know what to ask for? How do you decide a reasonable price where I, everyone I, was happy. I think in our case, it was like a fire sale. So there's no reasonable price. There's something that you that we need. So just like I explained, there was something that I needed. It was the investment by the investors. Indeed. And yeah, I yeah. wanted to make sure that everyone had a return. Yeah. Um, we hear that a lot, actually, mm-hmm. funnily enough. Yeah. We hear that also with Gero Decker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he, he sold his company for, I think, 1.2 million Signavia to SAP. Uh, we asked him the same question. He said, well, we, we as founders, we would, be, would have been happy with 5 million, but we wanted to make a return for our investors. Yeah, and I think if you, in, in our case, there was no revenue in the business. There was like a, a nice growth line, but nothing really severe. The technology was interesting, but not unique to them. Um, it was literally for us at that point, it was a soft landing. And making a soft landing with a company that you would actually sort of would appreciate working with. And and that also that we were bullish on in long term and that we were excited about not just as a as an employee to participate in, but also for our investors that they would be excited about, hey, okay, sort of I traded this stock in this tiny company that was bankrupt technically um, <laughs> for something that might become yeah. something, right? And sort of we tried to make our investors at least get as excited about Mapbox as we were. I think a big part of them being excited was us joining them and being happy about sort of joining them. So I think that in the end was the most important outcome. And did they convert them in stock or did they also, if I may ask? I, th- I think I'm allowed to talk about it now, but yeah, sort of we, we initially had like a, a deal on paper, which was like 50-50. So like uh, some stock, some cash. Because you're not a big fan of stock swaps, are you, Jan? No, and, depending. And so depending. That, that's okay. an interesting one. So we actually sort of, we had like a, a, a term, like we initially had like the first term sheet on table and I was like, okay, 50-50 or something like that. And I was looking at it and I thought, fuck, this is actually, one, it's less than I was hoping because because of the investors. But can you make it all stock was my response. Mm-hmm. And my response was, can, can you make it all stock, same amount? Because it might on paper be not a return yet, mm-hmm. but I'm really long on the future of the company. So within a year or two from now, we'll be looking back at this as a success. And so I actually pushed for stock over cash because I couldn't care about cash. And my take on that was I can give my investors like a partial return now then still feels like a failure because it would be, let's say, 20 or I'm not sure about the exact amounts, but let's say you would get 30% of your investment back. So if someone invested a 50K check and they suddenly get like 15K back, yeah, that, that's not sort of, it's not going to make anyone really excited or happy. So even if you think you need that, sort of my push as a founder was, give me, can you please give me an, an all stock deal instead of what you offer me here? 
because this way at least can make it a win. And because I was long on him and the team, and so in hindsight, I'm glad that we did because like, what is it, six years later or seven years later, um, that stock is great, right? Yeah. And it also made everyone excited in what we were doing next. So everyone mm-hmm. sort of every now and then I would get an update and, and one of the investors would, hey, sort of, how are things at Mapbox? What are you working on? Yeah, and yeah, Kate yeah. tell me a bit more. And suddenly it still felt a little bit like I was an entrepreneur as well because I had these investors that suddenly became investors in, in Mapbox. And I took my investors into the company while I was investing in Mapbox as well. So I actually, I'm not sure if everyone was happy with it, but for me personally, that was the best outcome. Do you think it helped that you also had stock in Usabilla? Uh, that you're also a shareholder there. No, because at that point, Usabella was still pretty much sort of on paper was all promise, right? So okay. for me, financially, was definitely not the the thing that financially was the biggest driver was the fact that I actually got a salary, right? It was the first time that I that I had salary. And, and I think sort of technically on paper, part of that sort of either stock or the cash that they offered would have been mine, right? But it didn't feel like that because it sort of, I took investors' money and I was just really adamant on giving them a return. And because I made them a promise, I worked my ass off to make it happen. In the case of Human, we almost gave them like four tickets for the price of one, right? Because we spent four years sort of on about one year of runway. We spread out over four years and we kept going at it and kept trying. So I think the end was sort of, I need to be taken care of. And I need to be able to sort of afford living in San Francisco with my family. And I'm going to do this again, right? Sort of whether, regardless of the outcome and regardless if the stock of Mapbox will be valuable or not, we'll see in a few years from now. I get a salary so that I can pay my living in San Francisco. And that's the best outcome for now. And in the end, sort of, I just knew maybe I was signing up for a year, maybe I was signing up for six months. I, I told my wife that we would be moving to San Francisco for six months, maybe 12 months, maybe two years. Let's, we'll, we'll stay as long as it's fun. How did she react when you you discussed that you were getting a salary and you were going to be able to <laughs> pay, well, re- pay rent finally? <laughs> well, that was this point in time sort of for, for us as a family was a big sacrifice because Avi, at that point, my girlfriend and, and now wife, she sort of, she had been following me through my crazy adventures sort of, and or at least following my crazy, definitely not following me, far from it. Um, she had been following these crazy adventures for a while. And she had a great job as well and that actually paid the bills instead of <laughs> in contrast to me. Uh, but she suddenly had to drop everything and move to San Francisco with me. And and in that case, sort of long live the American visa system. The visa that I got actually didn't allow her to work for the first, let's say, two years almost. So that's a big decision to make if you're also sort of, if you're building your own career and if you're doing things. But at the same time, she... So I understood that this was like a unique opportunity for me in this case, and, and also a little bit for us. At least in the end, it turned out to be for us. But at the point, initially, it was for me. So we were lucky enough to be able to sort of combine that with getting our second kid, and we were hoping to to make that sort of timing work, and it worked out. And then after two years, she was able to work in San Francisco as well. But it took two years to wait for that, and that's tough, right? So any monetary outcome should not sort of. I think that's. It was not worth it. It was the experience for us to be able to work in San Francisco, both of us. And she worked at Uber and in the uh, recruiting team and did all kinds of uh, cool stuff. And she went to a course at Stanford. And so she also came back to the Netherlands with experience that was worthwhile. And I think that's the most important thing.
Hey Paul, and uh, with Usabilla, of course, it's a different story, right? Because you were at those days not uh, daily active anymore within the company. Yep. You uh, had Mark as a CEO there. You really left all the control to him and had yep. no, no mechanisms in place, etc. How, how did that happen? How did that exit occur? Can you... That's a very different sort of process. We had like, I, I was part of the uh, board, so I sort of at least um, could see them execute like crazy for, for a long while. And every year there was like a yearly shareholders meeting where all these shareholders would be would be present and they would be presenting their plans and their budgets and, and discuss some of the, um, uh, the the targets. And every year they would just hit it out of the park. And, and at some point in time, I remember that we had conversations, hey, are they actually make this also work on mobile? So sort of web was dominant and mobile came up. Are we? Is this is this going to be a risk making that transition to mobile? And is this going to ri- be a risk that actually would slow us down? And then the next year we'd have a conversation. Okay, we're now at sort of x x x x ARR. This is going to be very difficult to push through this because you need a very different organization to get there. And we're we're not going to raise additional capital. So will we be able to do this on cash flow? Right. And they hit it out of the park again. So that we had a few of those years where we had sort of, okay, there, is this going to be a good moment to have these types of conversations? And then somewhere along the way, we decided, okay, this is a good moment to actually start exploring this. And, and we worked with an investment banker in this case. So they started making like their long list, short list. And so it was a very much like a driven process by an external party uh, that helped build a market around these shares. Mm-hmm. Um, but that entire cycle took about a year, right? And, a and year from decision-making? From very to... first conversations, selecting the bankers, and then going with the bankers, they would start making their deck, and then with the deck, they would start shopping for a long list, and then the first offers came in, and we started comparing the offers, and sort of, and then the that was actually a term sheet being signed, still due diligence, and was a public company, so it was all kinds of stuff that needed to happen before. So I think that the entire cycle is about a year. And at that, in that year, I was living sort of in San Francisco and I was having my job at Color Genomics and would check in uh, behind my desk while at the same time getting all these messages and helping review the decks and, and such. So it was a very surreal period for me as being at arm's length because they did all the work. Mm-hmm. Were but they it, still based here in the Netherlands? Yeah, yeah. yeah so they had about sort of, I think at that point, 120 or 150 people in the office, wow. and just an amazing sort of. It was, you were you were like their San Francisco liaison. Well, almost. not really. I was not really sort of, and I, I was not involved in the day to day. But the only thing that I knew is how much effort it would take, and I just tried to do my very best to support Mark and the other team. And I was. But you never did member. any meetings because you were there anyway. No, and I, I was. But not, you were the board member. You probably had board meetings once every yeah, month. Yeah, every quarter. month at that point, yeah. and making sure that the sort of that we were laser sharp and the numbers and so it was a really fun process to witness at the same time I of course saw the impact on how tough it is to do this so I was sitting there as a founder mostly as yeah. not a founder as in sort of the founder of, of Usabilla per se uh, I was sitting there as, as a fellow founder to Mark and Roel and sort of trying to support them in the best possible way so they wouldn't lose their sanity and they just did spectacular and they probably didn't need my support in any way but it was very interesting to sort of be part of it, but at the same time not being part of it. And I didn't have any control. I didn't have any say. Sort of, yeah, of course, technically on paper, yes, but it was up to them to make this happen. And what was it, it like for you? Because you started this company in university. You made these trips to Amsterdam to meet it with the investors, like like Johan here, as a very very young guy. Yeah. And years later, here you are on these board calls to sell the company for this huge amount of money. What was it like personally for you? Because well, I have a very weird sort of, there are these years, let's say eight years that there's 
no real value to anything that you do, right? Sort of there is, of course, you see valuations, but we didn't raise any capital. So there was also not a formal point in time there was a valuation being put on the company. So you the growth in your Yeah, AR, you see right? your ARR and then you put that in a spreadsheet somewhere online. You think, whoa, would that really, is that really like the amount that it would be worth now? As in sort of, wow, if that, that would be, that would be, but still it's, paper, you, you own some stock and it's not publicly traded. So there's no one, so you can't sell it. So it was a very surreal period until that very moment that the first term sheets came in. I was like, so, whoa, whoa, if this is gonna sort of, if this, and then it's still, well, there's definitely not a deal yet. Let's just sort of chill down. But that was like a life-changing sum of money for me personally. So I was suddenly looking at these amounts on paper and thinking, I said, holy fuck, if this is... And I was still doing my... I was working my ass off at Color Genomics and helping them. And sort of it's... I had some at that sort of, let's say, three months or four months of San Francisco savings. And depending yeah. on sort of... In the Netherlands would have been a year maybe, but that was about sort of... That was what I personally had at that point. And now you see these amounts and still everything can still go wrong. And it's still this very lengthy process to get to the finish line. And then I remember the very day that the deal was actually sort of signed, I, I need to get a like a paper signature. And then sort of you get this weird dance in the Netherlands with notaries and you need to print it, sign it, scan it. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure, I can do that. Where the fuck do I get a printer, right? At 6 a.m. in the morning because it was closing on in Dutch times and I was in San Francisco at that point. So I was rushing. So I had this really shitty day where I had to rush to like a DHL sort of copy shop and try to find like a printer and I couldn't find it. And sort of I finally had like two hours later, I had a printed piece of paper. I signed the deal, a very weird anti-climax standing in the, in the FedEx store. <laughs> <laughs> with this piece of paper where that it literally changed like my financial sort of situation insanely. And then I went to the office and I checked in and I was sitting behind my desk and I was like, I was working on the product team at Color and I was sort of sitting there and thought, okay, I'm sitting here now, but sort of actually sort of, I don't necessarily have to work any, sort of, it's I okay. Quit so now. I, can, <laughs> I can do whatever, sort of, what would I be doing? Would I be traveling for a little bit or... And and I kept go, I kept working at Color and kept having like an amazing time helping them and scaling them and that made me happy. And Did they know about the exit? No, no one knew. So that was like that's uh, also you oh, didn't really? tell anybody. I, I sort of I had like a few people around me that I sort of like the I know the, the CEO pretty well and sort of CEO was working a lot sort of and <laughs> I, I, at a point sort of I thought I just, okay let me just tell her as in sort of the CEO in this case Caroline and I had this conversation sort of yeah. Uh, so this company that I started, like, remember, remember that I also started another company before I joined? Uh, the second <laughs> one, no, the first one. So yeah, well, it got acquired for $80 million. Oh, did you own some stock? Yes, I still own some stock. <laughs> it's a very weird sort of surreal situation to be in. That literally at that point sort of didn't instantly change my life, but of course my financial situation yeah. instantly changed. And then sort of a day later, the money's being wired into your bank account and that's you, the very moment that I started investing. So that, uh, do you I remember just, refreshing your bank account? No, I, I set up. I was smart enough to set up push notification, but I was there was this sort of because these types I never had experienced any wire like that. So I was like, should I call my bank before yeah, this is going to happen? Yeah, or yeah, should I in, announce that this amount is flowing into my I, bank I account? Think I yeah. think so it's coming. Approach, right? yeah. So it's very it's it's very surreal, weird. Um, and is it? Okay, okay, so you get the push notification. 
And then maybe it's sort of a dip, I can imagine. Like, wow, this happened. And then nothing changed, basically. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. like almost... Uh, you still other, have to go do the groceries. I, and, uh, I think <laughs> other fellow startup founders sort of understand, sort of, I at least I always have this anti-climax. Yeah. Also, when yeah. we close the deal for, like, when we raised capital for detail, you you, just, you start pitching and sort of there's a moment building up and the excitement and the waiting game and then sort of excitement and then you sign it and you think, hmm, okay, let's go on. <laughs> uh, and, and it was a bit the same Years and sort of nothing changed much. So I, I kept working for for color genomics for a while, and I told them, I said, I think it's better if I work two days less. So I took some more time with my family and traveled a bit, and then before I knew, I started a new company again. So it's in the end, it doesn't sort of a lot has changed in that sense. It's sort of the I feel incredibly lucky that I sort of I can make different decisions now, and also starting as an entrepreneur again. I knew when that happened that I could suddenly build a new company again and regardless of where I would be and regardless of my family situation I just knew that sort of I at least had the fuck you money to actually do something again without my family feeling any impact of what of my decisions um, and I very much enjoyed that feeling and sort of I mostly tried to sort of pay that forward in the best possible way. You didn't try to get your wife to pay for the mortgage. The mortgage, no, she now forces me to pay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I still have, I think I still have like seven or eight years to make up for. So, (laughs) Um, the thing I was wondering, because you started a new company, uh, Detail.co, which is truly amazing. I I can't wait to try it out. Uh, It looks so cool on the website, uh, Detail.co. I (laughs) highly encourage everyone to check it out. But from the moment of starting, I believe, or very early on, you raised $2 million and an additional $5 million uh, somewhat later. You obviously made two good exits yourself. What was the reason for you to raise external capital anyway? A super good question. I, initially, when I started out with detail, I thought, let's, let's do it by myself and sort of build like the first traction. But I actually realized that the investors along the way for both Usabella and Human have been so key to the success of the company in various ways. Not because sort of a typical thing of investors say we're value add. I don't think they're actually value add, but the fact that they were there and that we sort of were sort of explaining ourselves to them and that we were sort of building this and show up in your of, story, probably yeah, also. and and yeah. then sort of shooting holes in some of the parts of our story, whether they had sort it's of sort relevant of an accountability ex- partner as well. I think accountability combination with sort of along the way there were moments in time that each one of them became really helpful. So. Uh, and the, the person that I explained that kicked me out on the street in London, he has like a very traditional private equity background. Oh, he was for sure incredibly valuable when we when we closed that deal, right? Sort of he was the shark on our side of the table this time. And and we didn't have any experience, sort of, or at least they didn't have any experience in, in, in doing those types of things. So suddenly sort of his experience was incredibly valuable. Was he va- <laughs> valuable when I had to present my marketing plans in the in the in the th- second or the third year? Not really, right? So along the way, each of them turned out to be really sort of helpful in, in, in various tiny little parts of the journey. And that's what I was looking for when I started Details. I wanted to partner up with the right people. And I had the opportunity to sort of, for me personally, it's less about sort of the financial outcome of what I'm doing. It's much more about the ride. And being able to do this together with an amazing group of people that is willing to support me again, um, that actually, that just, that makes it for me much better. As in, there is an amazing group of people that is willing to put sort of money in what we're doing. Second one is that it also separates the financial risk from my time. So my financial risk is sort of, I'm basically, there's my time and my effort and my energy and my obsession of building something magical. 
that's what I invest. And I do that with an intensity that sort of that I think sort of warrants a good investment in, in the company. So if you want to be part of that and you trust me at a personal level to execute, then it's great to have you aboard. And sort of and you can get aboard by sort of taking on the financial risk of the endeavor. And that to me is like a that worked very well for Usabilla. We tried to do that for, for human and usability early days. Didn't really sort of at, at a different scale it helped. Uh, but now suddenly, because I did that, I actually have like a war chest that enables me to execute a company in a way that I otherwise would not even nearly be able to do so. As in, I would not be able to bankroll the organization that I'm building now. And because you want talented people, of course. And I'm I'm getting just even more impatient this time. I'm sort of the. It's really about sort of building like an engine as quickly as we can. And I know what to do. I have the experience to sort of. I've I've witnessed what happened at Mapbox and Color and sort of building those teams. And I did the same sort of early days, building like the early foundation of usability and the early foundation of of human. Now I know how to do that, right? So a big part of what I'm doing, I know how to do. So I can skip some steps. And some steps you can't skip, but raising that capital it actually enables me to go brute force. And sort of, we we're already like a team of sixteen, and we started sort of we have like a big foundation of the product is being laid, and a lot sort of we were excellent. My goal as a founder right now is to outperform most of the others, right? And not by a little bit, but I need to be ten times better, and that's the capital that I raised. So the type of company that we're building is very different this time. But what are the steps that you uh, are skipping now? You mentioned it. Yeah, simple things is sort of like setting up your paperwork and such. Just a very simple example, sort of knowing how to structure your cap table, getting the right folks in, um, what lawyers to work with, um, how do you build up a great hiring pipeline and actually getting the right people in. Uh, I no longer do my tax um, taxes on Saturday evening, mm-hmm. uh, the evening before <laughs> I need to do them. That type, sort of there is suddenly oh, yeah. like a functional organization from day one, which enables us as a team to focus on the things that actually make the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. And that's in in our case right now, building product and positioning ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, then at the same time, product market fit and building like the right thing and actually validating that that's still really complicated, of course. So some of the hard things are still equally hard mm-hmm. in building a great product that a lot of people actually enjoy using and are willing to pay for. But some of the hard things that are much more baseline, sort of getting the, the guardrails up and running is much easier now. And sort of same goes for hiring talent. And so I, I underestimated how much easier that is this time around. And also, it's easier if you raise capital, right? So then I'm able to pay like world-class talent and I'm able to actually pitch them on the idea and get them excited because of the track record that you have. And so you suddenly have an unfair advantage in some ways. Very practical question. Do you take a salary now? Yeah, 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 I do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that's also sort of, I'm taking like a, relatively to the others on the team, definitely not one of the other. But we do take like, a, and especially for the other founders on the team in particular, and I really find it important that they do. So of the founders, I'm not taking the highest salary, um, but I do take a salary, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is good. Yeah. 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 Two more questions before we go to the valuation. Mm-hmm. How did you celebrate the closing and what did you buy for yourself as a present? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh uh, how did I celebrate the, the closing of the closings? We have yeah, to say. so the closing of human, I celebrated with a trip to Hawaii with my family that actually turned sour because my daughter had chicken pox. Oh, so we had to cancel the trip, so that was too bad. And the closing of Usabilla, I actually celebrated 
sort of you have this picture you sort of oh now I'm gonna sort of buy X or Y. What I actually bought was a road bike. I'm an avid cyclist, so and I didn't even buy the most crazy expensive road bike, but I went to the store and I just picked up the road bike that I sort of liked and that I wanted and that sort of would make me feel like I would go fast, right? So <laughs> I, I bought like a nice uh, road bike, but not like a crazy road bike. Uh, and that was my celebration, yeah. It wasn't the Urban Arrow you're using no, these days. No, I, I celebrated with that one later. <laughs> <laughs> what is the, because Paul, I think it's a tremendous track record, right? And really inspiring to hear your story. What is the biggest advice what you have now for founders who are now running a company and it's not, they run into the face, it's not easy, right? You have difficulties finding users, attracting users, attracting funding, uh, hard to attract uh, people, etc. What is the biggest, let's say, general advice that you have for founders in these rough times? I would try not to tie my identity to my company. And I think there is like this common thread, especially for early founders, that your identity grows with your company and you become your company, right? Sort of to the outside world, you're sort of Mrs. Uh, fill in the name or Mrs. Mr. fill in the name of the company. And, and I think sort of, Whatever happens to that company, as long as you sort of pour in your energy and you try to do your very best, that's sort of the best potential outcome. And sort of, it's not, in the end, sort of, I also tell it to the, to the team members now in detail, this is just a job, right? Mm. And, and sort of everyone who makes it feel like it's more than, it's just a fucking job. And sort of, there are so many other things in your life that are so much more important but it is the most amazing job that you can have, right? And sort of to me personally, that's sort of, that really sort of, that excites me. And that's sort of the reason why I'm doing this. People ask me, why on earth would you be doing this again if it's so painful? Well, because I actually, I think I enjoy that and I enjoy doing this. But I do think that sort of, I'm much more than the company that I'm building. And so mm-hmm. it's much easier now that you say, hey, well, you, have to create, you have an impressive track record. Well, sort of when I started usability, I didn't have that, right? I was this, this university student that just had a crazy ID. And so it's much easier in your second or your third company to disconnect. Like Indeed. sort of, I have much more to lean on in terms yes. of like my yeah. background. But I do think sort of for every single founder, also first-time founders who are starting their company, just feel comfortable sort of that if you do your best and you sort of, you don't, it's not, it's not the outcome of the company that's the most important. It's, it's how you actually build it and how you treat people along the way. And that's the thing that you're building up over time. And it could go amazing. It could also go the exact opposite. And either way, we'll be fine, right? Mm. And I think that's the most important thing. And that's sort of because then you have sort of people to lean on again. And you have other sort of amazing colleagues that you treated well mm-hmm. who are willing to work with you again. And uh, there are suppliers that, that, that want you to win. So I think that's the type of... Just in the end, everything will be fine. Devaluation. All right, now it's time for the valuation, or what I like to call the good stuff. This is a hard one to assess, so I approached it from that box, the acquirer's eyes. What value did human hold for them? Recall that Mapbox provides mapping SDKs so companies can integrate map views in their apps and on their websites, servicing clients like Foursquare, Evernote, Instacart, Pinterest, GitHub, and more. At the time, Mapbox had raised over $60 million in total, mostly from a 52 million Series B in 2015, the year before. A year after acquiring Human in 2017, they would raise a major $165 million. For Scope, in 2016, Human was used by over 1 million people and had tracked over 1.5 billion activities to date. 
In the press release, Mapbox emphasized the strong network effects of their SDK, their product. So more developers use it, meaning the maps get better, which attract even more developers to it. And so the flywheel spins. Keep this in mind, because it means that to Mapbox, human held huge strategic value. Acquiring human enabled Mapbox to supercharge their offering and to expand their map SDK into mobile, as well as offer real-time updating map data. The acquisition was also an acqui-hire, as the team that built the success joined Mapbox. Thus, it follows that Mapbox would pay huge multiples for human because of the future value it would bring. Mobile and real-time mapping are game-changers and would fan the fire of the SDK network effects. Thus, I looked to multiples and valuation ranges for SaaS companies in 2016. Research by the infamous Thomas Tungus reports that the average Series A valuation was $15 million, and the average Series B valuation was $50 million back in 2016. I believe that Mapbox would pay around Series B-ish, so 40 to 50 million euros for human, due to its clear strategic value and contribution to Mapbox's compounding network effects. So, Paul, is this guesstimation higher, lower, or exactly right? It's um, much higher than it was. Yeah, yeah. It was a very typical soft landing. So, in this case, it was very, very far off. I think she she was right about the strategic value. There was a lot of strategic value in, I think, mostly the way we solve problems and not in the actual product that we're... So that the product was, in many ways, almost like a handicap because it wasn't nice to have initially to test their SDKs, but they couldn't really use the product in any way. It was a distraction from their core business and they actually didn't want to touch any consumer-type companies. And we, they also were serving customers that were sort like as human, right? So, it was, so that we had a little bit of crisis communication to do to some of those customers as well. Uh, in the end, what we got out of the deal was very much like the investment that the investors put in. And like I said before, it was like an all-stock deal. So in hindsight, sort of, I think they have to get a very, very high multiple on, uh, on their current uh, valuations to actually reach those types of amounts. So who knows, right? You never know. If they become like a, like a trillion-dollar company, they might hit it. But I think most of all, our best outcome was that the investors were at that point sort of satisfied and happy. And, and in hindsight, I think it might or might not beat like the returns of an index fund if they would have invested their money in an index fund. Um, but that's still to be seen because they're still like private and they're not publicly traded. So the actual value of the shares is still in the open. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Big Exit Show. And we hope you enjoyed today's program. And if you did, please subscribe to our show at Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have any feedback, please send us a message at podcast at peak.capital. My name is Remy Gieling. I'm Johan van Meel. Thanks again for listening. And we hope you join us at the next episode.